Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aidan Byrne. My guests are Jarvis Rockwell. He's the son of the late Norman Rockwell, the legendary and iconic American painter and illustrator. He's joining me with Stephen Haggerty, an editor and author who writes under the name S.T. Haggerty. Steve has written a much-anticipated book on the backstories of Rockwell's beloved models. Here's Jarvis and then Stephen. The head process he went through. First, he did a he did a sketch on a piece of typewriter, a pattern typewriter paper. Then he tried to figure out uh, who he was going to use in it, and and uh, then he'd have Gene Pelham come over and do and do photographs. Then he take the photographs and put them in a bellopticon, which blew the photographs up 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 on on a on a piece of architect's detail paper and he would and he would trace around where the photographs would be on on this on this paper and then when we got those all done then he would take the the uh, the piece of architect architect detail paper which on a, was on a drawing board and take it into the put it on his on his uh, easel and then he would do a very careful charcoal drawing of the whole of the whole thing and then he would photograph that and that photographed and then he would then he would blow that up on the canvas in in the and and uh, and trace that on and then he would take that in and, and then and then call what call me Norman because okay, okay, okay. he told everybody whether they were little kids oh, yeah, yeah. or adults they'd say hi Mr. Rockwell and he'd say call me Norman <laughs> to everybody. So in other uh, words he was a very down to earth individual. He felt it made people feel more comfortable than A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. I hope you're all doing well. Norman Rockwell is a global phenomena, born in 1894, when he died in 1978, he left behind a huge body of work that lit up the American and popular imagination as a painter and illustrator. His work lovingly captures the best of American culture and life, rural life in particular. Rockwell gave us cover illustrations on the Saturday Evening Post magazine of Ordinary and down-home American life and people. His best-known works include Saying Grace and the Four Freedoms series. Stephen Haggerty will be joining me with Jarvis Rockwell, Norman Rockwell's 89-year-old son, to talk about his late dad and what it was like growing up alongside him in Arlington in rural Vermont. The family later moved to Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Stephen Haggerty, who writes under the name S.T. Haggerty, has penned a fascinating book, Call Me Norman, the backstories of Rockwell's beloved models, and we look forward to its publication. It's a fitting episode on this Memorial Day weekend in the United States of America. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. In our next episode, we will catch up with one of those famous models, Pauline Adams Grimes. Here's a wee snippet. And it was soon after that, that my mother got a call from Norman Rockwell. And uh, he invited us up to his studio in Arlington um, to uh, model for him. And he wanted to know if my mother would, would bring us up, if it would be okay if we could model for him. And she said, yes, she would love to. And so because my mom didn't drive, uh, we hired, she hired a taxi and he took us from Cambridge to Arlington, Vermont, about 17 miles. And Norman paid the car fare and Mr. Butler, uh, our taxi driver's name was Mr. Butler. That was Pauline Adams Grimes, and in our next episode, we will play the full interview with her. Coming up is my interview with Jarvis Rockwell and Stephen Haggerty, recorded this past winter, 
The full audio visual will soon be available on my YouTube channel, Life on Planet Earth. This episode covers a lot of ground, free-ranging like a conversation between old friends. There's a bit of light-hearted banter with Stephen clarifying Jarvis or Jarvis seeking to do the same here and there. We learn a lot about Norman Rockwell, who was a sort of artistic perfectionist who worked seven days a week, but also loved sitting at the head of the dinner table and carving the family roast. Rockwell apparently was also a Freemason, as we learn. He loved literature, his wife reading Tolstoy's War and Peace as he sat there at his work. But most of all, Norman Rockwell was a man of the people, which is why he told his neighbours in Vermont to call me Norman. Sure, look, it's grand to have you back. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. My guests are Jarvis Rockwell, the son of the late painter and illustrator, the famous painter and illustrator and American icon, Norman Rockwell, and the author, S.T. Haggerty, otherwise known as Steve. To me, he has become a friend and he's writing a book on Norman Rockwell. He's going to tell us about that. But gentlemen, welcome to my show. Uh, Where are you today? We're in uh, North Adams, Massachusetts in my house uh, up on a hill in in uh, across from the across from the mill there was a uh, I, I can't remember the name of the mill now there's a, there's a giant old brick mill here north adams was a mill town and uh, adams was the first and then north adams up up north of it became it became a big mill town because they had a river and uh, so they uh, they used the river for the power back in the, back in they at one at one time they have a photograph in fact of 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 the mill where the uh, where they 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 hired i think something like 80 Chinese, but back in the back in the early part of the last century, or the or the last part of the previous century, and and there's there's all these Chinese standing there, which is really, really very interesting photograph to see. How far are we from Arlington? Arlington is about an hour north of here, o- over the line, and uh, up in up in the up in the Green Mountain. And why we mention Arlington is because that's where. Your family moved to when your dad was young, right, to pursue his artistic career. And well, you, when, uh, when, when, when I was young. Tell us about <laughs> my that. My father was not so young then. Tell us about yeah. that experience, because he did some of his most creative pieces in Arlington. Oh, I, I, I think he did most of his most creative pieces in, in, in Arlington. I think his, his earlier, the earlier stuff was, uh, well, it was, it was, it was more, uh, more illustrator-like, I think. And and I think I think I think some of it got got more painterly like, but not not in not in the abstract sense, but you know, just in in, in the realistic sense. You know, they, they they became less less character caricatures and almost, and and uh, they became more more real people, and that's why you can recognize so well the the individuals that are in them. I I, I can. I can see them, in, and and uh, if if uh, if I still had my memory, I could remember their names. When you moved from New Rochelle to West Arlington, what was that experience like? There are two different parts. He, he moved to Arlington, and we were off on a, a dirt road, with uh, you know with it was grass down the middle of, of of between where the tires were. So in the winter, it was a little bit distant. 
I mean, how shall I, how shall I put it? And uh, my, my mother was from, from Pasadena, California. So she was not exactly accustomed to this, uh, this kind of thing. So, and my father was from 106th and Amsterdam Avenue in New York. So he wasn't either, but we managed to survive it. And then, uh, then his studio burned, and then, then we moved to West Arlington, and uh, that was uh, you, you. You came across the Battenkill River uh, on, a, on a covered bridge, and then and you came to the West Arlington Green, and there was a schoolhouse and a building with uh, with the Grange Hall, and then a, and a church attached to it, and then a, over in the over in the side, a a, a, dan- a summer dance hall was just uh, you know open sides on it. So they had they'd had they'd have they'd have da- uh, square dances in the summer there. It was a very rural area, and there was a lot of community. Oh, it was, yeah. I was going to say there, there, we lived in one of two houses, and they were they were built in seventeen something late seventeen hundred seventeen ninety two seventeen ninety two yeah, and uh, and they were built for the for the two daughters of of a farmer. We 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 uh, we bought one, and the other the other one was owned by this farmer J- James Edgerton. He and, and all his family were uh, were models. You yourself modeled for your father. Tell us about oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was. It was. Uh, if you were running, he would have somebody hold your hold your uh, your foot up so that you looked like you were running, and, and then you'd, <laughs> photo- and you'd, you'd be photographed in that position. And then he would. He wanted to have it exactly right. As as an artist, uh, you know, they they always had models. You know, there, there was there was no there was no fantasy in it. You know, it was, it was all used models all the time. You know, and then and then you would. You would work with that model, you know. Steve here was your summer neighbor, at least for many years. And Steve, I want to bring you in uh, to tell us about the book you've been working on. So for pretty much all of my life, we've had a house in Sandgate next to West Arlington. So I spent three months a year in West Arlington all summer long in vacations and, um, working on the farms, working among the models. So actually Jarvis, we know the same people. Some of them are deceased, uh, the same Most people. <laughs> and um, I, he knew them when they were kids and I knew them when they were, you know, 30, 40, 50 years old, still know some of them. So there's been a lot of books about Norman Rockwell, of course, but there's never been one written to really go into depth about who were these people that era of 1938 to 1953 that appear in the paintings. And it just so happens um, when I started working on it, uh, it came clear that I knew a lot of these people and knew quite a few of them well. So it's um, 16 stories in the book that um, tell about the lives of these people. They knew Norman Rockwell quite well, a lot of them very well, because when he went to West Arlington, he went there and studied everybody. He went to all kinds of events, um, you know, the Rotary Club, um, you know, square dances, church suppers. So he got to know all these people and had kind of a catalog in his mind. Well, he was an artist and he was an illustrator and he was using these people to, to um, in, 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 with, with his imagination. So, so they, he was there. They were they, nobody ever really got to know him. You see, that's what I mean. And that's I think that's important to distinguish. Yeah, that's fascinating. And Steve, let me ask that, you, did you did Steve ever meet Norman Rockwell? No, I met um, just Jarvis. And his two brothers, David McCullough said it's better if the writer doesn't meet the the person he's writing about. You've met all the models. You are the perfect author to write the story. And it's much anticipated. In fact, you got a wonderful glowing spread in the New York Post recently, a terrific article. And it just whetted everybody's appetite. The uh, piece was by Raquel Lanieri, Meet the Real People Behind the famous Norman Rockwell paintings. The author is you. Again, it's a much anticipated book. Uh, We won't give too much away, but you can sort of tell us a little bit more about the models that you wrote about. One example is 1939. Everybody said to call him Norman. They all called him Norman. They told me to call him Norman. So 1939, this little girl is out pinning clothes on the line. She's 11 years old and an old rattle trap, an old woody station wagon 
the the old kind from the 20s. It would have been maybe early 30s, you know, with a big square back drives up and an artist comes up to the clothesline and says, I'm Norman Rockwell. Um, I want to use you in a painting called Marbles Champion. And um, the station wagon was actually he, he had a kind of a, a Ford station wagon, but it was always it was always very clean because he liked to have everything clean. And it was it was kept in very good condition. So it, it was not a not a rattle trap. OK, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. Yeah. All right, okay. but this woman, I guess it was kind of old for the, <laughs> she didn't say it wasn't clean. She just sounded oh, like an old, older model station wagon. Oh, I see. Okay. But, you know, it's a long time ago, but that that's how she remembered it. Yeah. And, um, you know, Norman said he was an artist and he wanted to do a painting called Marbles Champion. The grandmother said, sure, you know, and um, he came and picked up, her name's uh, Ruthie, McLenathan Skelly came over and, and picked up Ruthie and went back to the studio and Jarvis was there. Uh, the painting called Marbles Champion is Jarvis, another boy whose family owned the IGA and Ruthie. You know, Norman had her pose as the Marbles Champion. Jarvis, I want to just mention a famous painting your dad did. In 1951, you were in a painting called saying grace it's the most valuable painting your father ever did it shows an elderly woman and a young boy praying at a busy yeah, train yeah. station restaurant it's fascinating it's a beautiful and the new york post featured that and i'm happy they did you had come home on leave from serving at a military base as a support for the u.s air force can you tell yeah, us the whole yeah, background yeah. here I, I don't rem I don't remember actually when when I did it. I remember that Don Winslow was was the other was the other uh, person in, in it. He he was um, he was a person I'd met when I was at the Art Students League in 1951. I think it was. I studied with uh, Frank Riley and then uh, uh, George Gross. Well, that's what I that's what I'd been doing at that time. And Don Winslow is the one with the cigarette in his mouth. Oh, yeah. And he went and, he, and he'd been in the he'd been in the in in in, uh, in, in an illustration class that I wasn't 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 in. He, he was uh, one of these one of these young men that came up and, and spent the summer living in in the uh, schoolhouse down in front of us, in front of our house. And studying with my father, my father would go down and give them a, give them a critique, and then uh, I would go out and and uh, I would get some chickens and chop their heads off, and 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 you know, so so they could they could get fed. Steve, I want to turn to you because I don't believe anyone but someone like you who had lived among the models in Arlington, West Arlington, would be able to pull off this project to get everybody together. Many of them now are in their late 70s, early 80s. But how did you pull it off? How did you do this? Amazing. Well, it's less complicated than you might think. For me, having lived among these people for three months, and some of them were my family's dearest friends. For example, the painting Breaking Home Ties, which is one of the favorites, the elderly farmer sitting on the back of the rusted bumper was one of our best family friends we we had dinner with him every afternoon we worked on the farm so to generalize yeah floyd yeah. bentley yeah floyd yeah so i worked on his farm but to tell you generally norman got maybe a hundred miles from either side of that village green with a covered bridge so you picture you go down one mile one way, one mile the other. So people like Jarvis before me, but when I came, the same people were still there. So we just knew all the same people and they um, weren't too hard to look up. I had some help from somebody who, another fellow who um, holds models reunion. He, he gets some of the people together. Who's that? So Don Tracty. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's how it came about. And as I started working on it, I think I said this, but um, I didn't realize just how many of them I knew and knew well. Um, I, 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 Don Tracti uh, got divorced from his wife. Maybe I shouldn't tell. The, the missing painting. Yeah, the right. <laughs> tell me about that. Well, that's the Breaking Home Ties painting. An artist named Don Tracti um, and his wife got divorced and he took the painting 
and, 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 he, and he, he did a copy of it, and he put the real painting in a, in a fake in a fake room beside beside it, and, and kept the fake one out there, out there, so she wouldn't get the real one. <laughs> and I think that helped with insurance. Too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they are good stories, Steve. You've done hours and hours of tape with the various models. You've been at it for four years. Oh, well, it, it's basically a lot of us reminiscing with old friends and old friends and people from the neighborhood. So really just a lot of fun. Fascinating for me because I also learned the history of Arlington, Vermont, rural Vermont from 1939 to 1953. And they, you know, represent Norman Rockwell and the simple life that he wanted to live in Vermont around these people and, and paint these people. I have one of his paintings hanging up. Can you see it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Is that that? Is that is that uh, Charlie Crowfoot? McKee, McKee. No, who is that? Charlie Crowfoot. Oh, is that Charlie Crowfoot? I know the Crowfoot family because I worked with Charlie's grandson on the farm. So Charlie Crowfoot was a farmer who lived a mile down the road from Norman, along the beautiful scenic Battenkill River, which is about thirty feet wide. And um, so Norman found Charlie from the Grange Hall, the agricultural educational meetings, which was very important then because it was dairy farms. Jarvis probably remembers all the cows that were around that were yeah, still well. around when I was. But so Norman wanted an older man. I think Charlie was in his 70s. Yeah, because he, when I went, I, he was he was old when, when I was when I was when I was young there. Yeah. Well, I didn't know him. He died before I came, but you did know yeah, him. Well, I, I I saw him. He and his wife. They they live uh, 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 just up the road from the uh, from the covered bridge. Jarvis, oh. I have a question, a technical question. How long did your dad, on average, spend on each painting illustration? How long was the process? It was a long. It was. It seemed like it was a long time. He he, uh, he was not Jackson Pollock. He was. He had a whole process. He had process. He went through. First, he did a. He did a sketch on a piece of typewriter, a pad of typewriter paper. Then he uh, he he tried to figure out uh, who he was going to use in it, and and uh, then he'd have Gene Pelham come over and do and do photographs. Then he take the photographs and put them in a bellopticon, which blew the photographs up 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 on on a on a piece of architect's detail paper and he would and he would trace around where the photographs would be on this paper and then when we got those all done then he would take the the uh, the piece of architect architect detail paper which was on a was on a drawing board and take it into the put it on his on his uh, easel and then he would do a scary careful charcoal drawing of the whole of the whole thing and then he would photograph that, and and he would have that photographed, and then he would then he would blow that up on on the uh, the canvas in in the and trace that on, and then he would take that in and, and then and then paint the picture. So it was it was quite a long process, and it was very very carefully done. He he, uh, he was he was uh, very very precise in what he in what he did. Would it take several weeks? Oh yeah 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 yeah. And he he had a little little trouble with some was was getting them in on time. So they uh, one place person he did them for a uh, Brown and Bigelow company in in uh, oh, the Boy the, yeah the Boy Scout calendar. And they had a, they had a man named Claire Fry. They would send him in, and he would he would stay in the hotel in town and uh, wait for my father to finish the picture. So he was a nudge. <laughs> he was obviously a remarkable man. He was a, an American icon. He was also a generous man. Just on a few things I picked up on and speaking to Pauline Grimes. What was he like to be around? He was your dad. Well, we, we'd come down in the morning and, and, uh, and he'd be reading the New Yorker. He he liked the New Yorker a lot. He liked the cartoons, and he and he, I think he read the stories in it. And I, I just remember the New Yorker. I'm sure there was other things that he read, but he wasn't very interested in reading the stories in the Saturday New Post because he didn't think they were very good. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, he we had we had a lot of books. We had we had hundreds of books, and he had mm. the old Dick Cedric Dickens and so on like that, Shakespeare. And he was a widely read man. Yeah, well, what what he had, what happened was my my mother, God bless her soul, would would sit in a, uh, in a in a chair behind him while he was painting, and she read War and Peace by Tolstoy out loud to him twice, the entire thing. Wow, it was, it was amazing. 
I, I can't imagine doing uh, art myself that way. But 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 I guess he, he already had his idea. Uh, he wanted a uh, encouragement of of of, uh, of a feeling of a good feeling and to, to to work from. I think somehow to have that to have li- literature and uh, you know. But can you imagine Tolstoy's War and Peace? I mean. The guns out, you know. <laughs> the key to his paintings, a, a big part of it, were the models. Knowing the models yeah. and their willingness to bring props, and um, you know, get to know him, so that well, he, he wanted he wanted real he wanted real people. So, Steve, what was the biggest challenge in writing this book and gathering all the material? Finding the best stories to tell. Um, so. If I interviewed 25 models, you can't tell everybody's story because some of it is is fairly routine. There's nothing real dramatic, even if it's good information. So going through um, and and finding the best stories and then being able to make a little plot for each one. For example, the um, there's one called the Homecoming Marine. Uh, there's a model. His name was Dwayne Parks. And the interesting story about him is he didn't want to model. So the, you know, the story becomes, is this Marine going to model? And if he does, how does Norman Rockwell get him to do it? He was a gruff sort of guy, um, rugged individualist type, 18-year-old kid uh, going, who, who, who was in the Marines. And this is modeling for, for photographs. Well, modeling for the painting. Yeah, but it's modeling for photographs for the painting. Not, right. Not, not modeling. Yeah. So That's readers, the they should understand that there was a photograph taken and then he... Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sorry. I just wanted to make sure that... Yeah. yeah. However, Norman did sketch a lot of the time and he was... Well... You know, he discussed this and he said he had these people model anywhere from a few minutes to a few days so that he said you could not paint just from photographs. He needed to to know, uh, see the spirit of the person, see them from different, see them alive to put dimension and feeling into the painting. Yeah, the model was a structure that he, that, that he used to, to put his, his sense of the feeling on. I don't think he knew the models particularly well. He just, he, he wanted that, the, the particular look of the particular structure, the particular face, and the particular body to, 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 uh, to use as, to use in his, in his painting. And then, and then he would, he would put the, uh, his, his own, his own feeling of, of whatever emotions he wanted on that face. And, you know, um, and, well, and, and so he would have the model smile, but, but, but the smile on the photograph might look a little, little automatic, but he would, he would try to make it, you know. There are some examples, though, like, um, say, the girl at the mirror where he she got to know him a good bit after being there four or five, six times. He would tell her about his life as a boy. She's a girl looking in the mirror to see if she was beautiful or not. And, you know, so he would talk about how he felt when he was a boy. And then some of the people like the fellow Walt Squares, who built his studio, he would take him out to dinner, like at a fancy place in, at Bromley Mountain. He knew his next door neighbors quite a bit, the Edgertons. Um, but I, I'm sorry, but but he was always very very distant from from people. I mean, he was uh, he was he was he was contained, and he had his own ideas, and he only used the the face as a structure that 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 he, that he, that he could then then play with. It, it doesn't that didn't have to do with the with the identity of the person. It had to do with his ideas. I'm sorry, but that's really that's what that's what he, I, that's what he was doing. But I, I think the thing is, um, you had so many artists who have extreme expressions, like, you know, they in a, books of that age, somebody's terrified and they show this horror yeah. or fear and they're going to spear yeah, somebody. Yeah. yeah. But I think, Norman, the people felt almost like honored guests. So he was able to work with them in a way to bring out these really intimate sort of smiles that nobody else could really capture uh, somehow. Yeah. And then, of course, he did photograph them. But I think his real strength was to get these emotions in facial expressions out of people. I, I find that a very interesting insight, Steve, and also Jarvis's color on it as well. 
his pictures and illustrations were very optimistic. They were exactly, happy. exactly, yes, yeah. Was yeah. that a deliberate yes, yes, part was, of his yeah, creative yeah, process? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, I, I think he, he was, he was painting an idea, and, he, and as I say, I think he was using the model as a structure. He wanted a particularly looking, a particular looking kind of structure. So when he, when he, when, when he wanted, wanted a very old lady. He used, among others, the, the grandmother next door, uh, in, sitting in the back of the car when 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 the when the whole family is going for a drive. And she's oh, going and coming. Yeah, and, and she's just she's just sitting there. And she's she's. Uh, you know, I, I mean, and that's about that's about all anybody knew of her. Her yeah, grandson yeah, yeah. said, is, "Yeah, she always." Uh, somebody said she always looked as if she had a sour pickle in her mouth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she was a nice lady, uh, a well, caring she, soul. Her face was like frozen into this one sort of serious expression. And that's, that's what New England was good at. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guests are Jarvis Rockwell, son of the late Norman Rockwell, and Stephen Haggerty, who has written Call Me Norman, the backstories of Rockwell's beloved models. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Right. Now, for people who are art aficionados, who have studied art, gone to art college and go to museums and look at the different uh, schools of art. Is there any way you could pin Norman Rockwell, his style? Is there anything that would sum it up? Well, it, it, was, it was realist, realist, and he, and he used it for illustration. My um, theory is that he really did see a lot of good in people. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. he wanted, I don't think it's just that he falsely made these expressions. That it was, he was a person who respected these people, and they were willing to show their, their very loving side a lot of the time. Some of them are, are different. They're serious and um you but, know he saw the but, good but people. he but he was painting he was painting his idea he was using them as as models for his idea he found people that fit that idea yeah 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 who, 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 so, or at least at least to a degree fit it fit it you know i mean oh, uh, yeah. yeah i mean of course if, if, if there's somebody who just committed a murder they wouldn't probably wouldn't look very good in the <laughs> 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 photograph but you know. Like it was a lot of fun growing up as his son. Well, it was it was interesting. I I, I mean I, I just it just re, just re, reminds me of, you know if he had a, if he had a boy running then you had to stand there and then and then then he would hold hold your uh, your your uh, right foot up in the air and you're supposed to lean forward and and, and look like you're running. So yeah. <laughs> and he did things like one of our um, I knew the son of son or grandson of. George Zimmer, who was in a painting oh, swimming, Zimmer. and Norman did it during the winter. So he brought in a bucket of water and had George sit in the chair and dumped it over his head. And I think <laughs> George rise, right? To get I, that I, look I, I, like I, he I, was. I didn't know about that. George Zimmer was a lot of fun. But George, you mean, you mean the, the, the old guy with the bald head? Yeah. Oh, oh well, he was a, yeah, I, I think he was a salesman. Oh, for uh, Mac Molding. Uh, I, I think so, uh, yeah. A and manufacturer he was, of plastic. Yeah, and, and I, I remember where he lived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He lived on the way into Arlington, and, and he lived in a, one of those uh, newer type of homes that they built in, a, in a lots, and it would have been a, been a field, you know. The way, you know, the way America grew building houses on fields. And so, Steve, you're also a published author. You have other works to your credit under the name S.T. Haggerty. This latest one on Norman Rockwell, it's going to be called Call Me Norman. It's about the backstories, right? That's how you're putting it together. Right. It's going to be called what? Call Me Norman because oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he told everybody, whether they were little kids oh, yeah, yeah. or adults, they'd say, hi, Mr. Rockwell, and he'd say, call me Norman <laughs> to everybody. So in other uh, words, he was a very down-to-earth individual. 
it makes everybody feel a little more. He felt it made people feel more comfortable than. Yeah. Than, that's that's. He didn't want to want to be uh, Rembrandt Van Rin or something like that. He he wanted to be he wanted to be be friendly and have them have them work with him. You know. So. And Charlie in the painting behind you, Charlie Crowfoot, who I knew about four or five members of the family at least, maybe more, I guess. And he wrote in his book on how I make a picture, how he needed to, you know, honor the, the models and treat somebody like Charlie, who was an elderly man with with real care. Because if you see how he's posing, skating, he didn't want him to get hurt. So I think he really liked these people a lot. And he, he was did, friendly. Um, he was friendly. But I mean, you know. yeah, like he gave him tennis lessons, some of them on oh, the court next to his house I, uh, and uh, gave I, them presents I, I, like... I don't what he couldn't have, he, he wouldn't have the time to give um, to his <laughs> A fellow named Beacom Rich um, from Arlington, a tennis pro, he brought him over. And then he gave um, the Edgerton children next door, like a couple of them watches for their birthday. And at um, Artis Edgerton, who's in the GI Homecoming, uh, he and Mary vacuumed the house on the morning of her wedding. The Edgertons lived next I can't door. Believe it. And they bought the flowers and gave her uh, artist, the model, um, a nice set of spode china. When your dad wasn't painting or illustrating and in his studio, how did he unwind? What did he do in his downtime? He'd think about it, and he and he and he and he read books. He was like this. He was just he was just uh, he was concentrated on on on, on his his whole idea his on, on his art. Yeah. So he was he was focused about on his art. Yeah. Was oh, some yeah, of yeah. that to do with the pressure to get his work out because there were Boy Scouts and others. Oh, he was wanted. he was always being late. He was always late. He was getting he was late all so often that, like I said, this this. Uh, Brown and Bigelow companies uh, sent sent this guy Claire Fry to to stay in a hotel in town to to what for my to, to hurry up my father up to get a picture done for yeah. him. You know. And I think too, um, well, the process these paintings a lot of them were very complicated. And his Arlington ones, I mean, there's up to ten or twelve people in a painting, so there's so many aspects of you know doing the layout sketch getting the right models, get them into the studio. Oh, yeah, yeah, the, the, the photography. Process, yeah, the, pro the process, the process he had in each picture was, was, was quite long involved. I mean, it was, it was, it required quite a lot of time and work. Yeah. And then he's done. And then, and then, and then he was listening to Arthur Godfrey in the meantime. But then <laughs> you, you had the element where when he thinks he's done, are the eyes right? Um, you know, each picture told the story. Is the story correct? Are the colors correct? And then he would invite whoever was around to come look at the painting. And sometimes he liked the reactions of little kids the best because they might say something like, Norman, you've got a guy up on the roof. You've got no ladder. How did he get up there? And, and <laughs> yeah, or, but then, but then, 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 he used to, then he used to worry them if some people didn't like it. So, oh. so my, my, my mother say, well, Norman, you know, they're, they're not, they don't, they don't understand it. So don't, don't worry about it. You know, <laughs> to, I can give you an example. To, Rosie the Riveter was a, a wartime painting yeah, yeah. and Norman got it done. It was published and a bunch of people in town said, how can you masculinize a beautiful young woman like Mary Doyle and make her with these big muscles and put her in a magazine? So Norman wrote a letter to the Bennington Banner apologizing for masculinizing a woman. But then wow. Mary Doyle said she liked it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, right, right, right. So, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. You know, so he was very conscious of public opinion. Yep. Yeah. Ex exactly. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's very. That's very. That's very. That's very well put. Yeah. And um, in his gossips, he was thinking maybe people were gossiping about, you know, him a little bit around town well, I, yeah. when he did the painting. Um, but, oh, actually, and he was worried that other people might think that he was accusing his friends of gossiping. So he put himself in it. When he was done and it was published, he called. Charlie Crowfoot in your painting called his daughter, Rena Crowfoot, and was worried, said, you know, what do people think of me with this gossips painting? And, and Rena started laughing and said, oh, come on, Norman, it's a great painting and nobody cares. And, 
And uh, I met people, I met Rena Crowfoot, you know, when I was a kid, she was older than when she was in that painting, but that's, he was nervous some of the time when he did these. <laughs> he was, he was actually, he was nervous uh, quite a lot of the time sometimes. <laughs> well, that nervousness got translated into great creative works. I'm reading from the well. feature that uh, Raquel Lanieri wrote for the New York Post, and it is Saying Grace, 1951, that picture that your dad painted. This painting, which shows an older woman and young boy saying grace in a crowded restaurant as the other diners look on, was the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. It's 1951 Thanksgiving issue, and it was one of Rockwell's most complex and you're quoted steve saying when he was working on it he got so frustrated that he threw it out into the snow and he left it there for a while before he finally went went out and picked it back up is that right Tell us about that. yes um peter rockwell um who unfortunately died this year um told us that um i didn't know that yeah yes yeah. See, I think there's going to be a lot of beautiful gems, untold stories in this book, Steve. I'm looking forward to reading it. Oh, thanks. And some of it is gathering stories that people around town knew. Right, right. And, um, you know, them sharing it. But, yes, it was um, quite an era in Vermont, you know, when people were pitchforking. Uh, hey, you know, they didn't have bailers pitchforking on wagons. Um, early on when Jarvis was there, they, you know, were using draft horses. Instead well, I, of tractors, I, I remember, when, I remember the, when the farmer next door got his got his Ford tractor. They used to use doodle bugs before that. They were cars that were cut down. They they take the the whole back of the car off and and they cut it just down to the back wheels, the front wheels, the motor, and a seat. You know, and they use they use that as a as a tractor. And I think uh, they were converted Model A's in um, oh, well, cutting the back off and putting a. Um, like tractor wheels on the back and so yeah, forth. Or, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did your dad do any farming? Oh, no, he, he wasn't, he, no, he wasn't interested in farming. He grew up a city boy, basically, New York City. Yeah, 106th and Amsterdam Avenue. He moved to New Rochelle initially, uh, yeah, which yeah. was an artsy community, and didn't settle there, and then he went to Arlington, West Arlington. That was yeah, yeah, his... Yeah. And, <laughs> I, and Arlington was, was wonderful for him because uh, it was everybody everybody could be a model. <laughs> everybody was everybody looked real, you know. <laughs> the, being in a city makes people's uh, faces contract, you know, and, and, and get stiffened because they, they, they don't want to reveal They're tense. Them. Yeah, yeah. They were who they were. You yeah. could see they were Yeah, thinking. well, like Bill Sharkey and Hottie Woodard. You know, oh, Jesus, yeah. Marketing people and sales and, you know, dignitaries who had to put on a like a poker face, let's yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, Right. Steve, what would you rate or rank as among his best works of art, Norman? If there was the top four or five, what, 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 what are they for you? Okay, I like the painting um, Freedom from Fear because it. I think Norman really got the feeling in it. It's a little bit haunting. It's about a woman tucking her kids into bed in, you know, yeah, 1940. A woman, a woman and her husband. In 1943. And what makes it a little more haunting is that the husband's holding a newspaper, kind of, he's almost sort of shield, shielding it from his wife and two kids the two kids are asleep and it really is talking about how nice it is in america that kids could go to sleep you know without fearing being bombed and so there's a kind of a real real fine art feeling to it for me it's i really feel it and of course i like the breaking home ties the man and uh son at the train station partly because floyd bentley uh sitting the the man sitting on the bumper was the guy we had dinner with on the farm all the time, worked on his cousin's farm. And I think there's a lot of um, feeling in that. And Floyd, um, you know, really uh, showed his feelings about his son. He looks downcast and it represents somebody going into the empty nest. And Norman at the time was becoming an empty nester himself. I like the uh, same grace, the people praying in the restaurant. One thing that makes it is the woman who was in it, Mae Walker, was dying at the time. 
and Norman showed it to her a few days before she died. Um, she died before it was published. So I think as a praying woman, he knew a woman from Arlington who was a real praying woman, especially at that point in her life. And he really captured, if you look at the way her hands are clasped together, it really gives the feeling. And, um, you know, it's saying, you know, freedom of religion, which, um, you know, is a big part of this country. And I think the other people in the paintings are very genuine too. And the girl at the mirror comes to mind. I knew her, her father was our family lawyer as he was Jarvis's. He was everybody's family lawyer for land issues and closings because there was only one lawyer in town, him. He lived across from Matt Molding and the, and the uh, that grocery store. But Jarvis disagrees with me a little, maybe, but I think some of these people had close relationships, pretty close, you know, as friends. The girl at the mirror, she really um, felt that Norman brought her out of herself like a director would an actor because she was a reticent girl, oh, she very said, she shy, said she said that. a shy Catholic girl. And when he, um, a little bit stoic, but when she was with him and her mother would be in the studio uh, too, he made her laugh and brought out oh, all these, oh, all these expressions. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she, it was really helpful in her life to, um, to be able to come out of herself. And, you know, he did share about his childhood with her as, as they were doing paintings so that, you know, he could relate to her. And so that's Jarvis. How did your dad influence you in your life later on in your career choices and the path you took? I just grew, grew up there. I, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, he was, he was uh, pleased that I wanted to be an artist and, and he, uh, he, he supported me right along for, for a number of years and, and uh, even paid, paid for my therapy. And <laughs> with Eric Erickson, no less. Well, well, yeah, but also it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was also when I was in San Francisco and, and uh, it was, it was, uh, it was hard growing up with, with a person that is so, so concentrated that uh, he was, he was friendly, but he was, uh, he was sort of distant at the same time. Time because he was so self-involved, you know, uh, uh, in, in what he was doing, you know. I think I think that's that's what my mother found difficult too. I, I think he was concentrated like this. He was, and I think that's what that's what uh, what artists that become famous are. They 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 concentrate. They have to they have to concentrate. They they they're fulfilling them. <laughs> Would he take Sunday morning off and go to church and then come back and flip pancakes for the family to get away from his painting and just did he oh, take no, any no, breaks? So, no 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 he Sunday he he worked Sunday he worked he worked he worked every day in the week. That's what I mean. He was concentrated it was it was his life to him to, to be able to to be able to express what he uh what he saw around him what he felt around him it's like dickens i think i think he was he was involved in it you know that that was mm. his, his whole uh, he quit high school and went to study with it, it was uh, george bridgman at, at the uh, uh, our students league and so on you know he he he, he did this great but i think Darvis did, yeah, right? i don't know if you had a phone in your house back then but did the phone was the phone always ringing with offers of work from different publishers and different groups. Was his phone constantly ringing? I'll just say they had a party line at the time, like four people on the same number. But were people calling him? Well, he got off the party line because it, it, was, it, was, it drove him nuts, you know. Was he getting a lot of offers? Um, I guess the Post would be calling him. I don't, I don't know. And, and, but but also, you know, there'd be other phone calls that he wasn't interested in, you know. so Not too easy. You must not disturb an artist, no, whatever you yeah. do. <laughs> Did he travel to meet his fans or those who beloved of his work did he go out to meet people he did he did some of that he, he was uh, he was also he was also a mason for a while but he forgot the password and and uh, uh, and, and it, it seemed just too complicated for him and he tried being in the grange but it was he didn't have to really have the time for it he he, he, uh, he, he liked to like to read uh, after dinner you know now, he did some work in the early 60s with his famous War on Poverty. Can you tell us about that? Oh, um, well, one was in the magazine called um, How Goes the War on Poverty. No well-known, but I guess more the one... Was, was, was that one with Walt Squires just sitting in the middle on a chair? No, that was a long shadow of Lincoln. I think he means the one with Ruby Bridges. 
problem we all live with was another one. I can't, I can't, um, I can't quite remember. The, the black girl with the two marshals. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think he started that one in... in uh... The Four Freedoms. Can you tell us about that? I can give you a little background. So 1942, Roosevelt gave a speech, a rousing speech to the American public, um, you know, that the United States should get involved in World War II um, because the Nazis were pounding Europe, bombing. And um, so Roosevelt had to get the American people uh, want, wanting to get involved. So he gave a speech called The Four Freedoms, basically saying that if we don't get involved, you know, these freedom from fear, freedom from want, freedom of religion, and the other one could be taken away if, you know, we don't defend these things. So Norman Rockwell created four paintings. Freedom of speech is the other one. Yeah, freedom of speech um, during his time in Arlington. And in West Arlington. In West Arlington. They went on a six, 16 city tour and raised $133 million. Is that right? It's like $2 billion today. But what I sense is that they did is more than that was to um, pitch in with Roosevelt's rousing speech to be a pictorial urging to get Americans to oh, agree yeah. and get involved in the war. Yeah. So they went to the 16 cities. And for example, in New Orleans, they, they had a, a poster two stories high of the four freedoms. And then, you know, like in the end, millions of copies of the four freedoms have been printed. But, but at that time, I think over a million people had attended these um, four freedoms events that were to sell bonds that resulted in the 133 million. So, wow. um, and these were all Arlington people. Freedom of speech was our friend from the, the little gas station. He probably had that gas station from 1940. I know he had it until 1980. Is that right? Yeah, because remember, you know, when Carl died. Steve, you still go back to West Arlington? Yes. Um, we still have our house there. Ours was also built in the 1700s. It's a little further out in the woods than where Jarvis was. Yeah, it's up, on, it's up on the mountain. Yeah, and some of the people are still there who pose for his paintings. And Beautiful. His paintings are being reproduced in covers of magazines still, I'm, I'm assuming, but certainly on uh, calendars and are being used to illustrate different products even. Or you, they're certainly hanging up on people's walls today, these prints who go into diners, who go into restaurants and homes. It's just incredible how his memory has continued and will continue on for a long time. Would you agree with that? He is an American hero. Well, and, and we and we still wear the same style of clothing, but when the style of clothing changes, then then, then they'll become more sort of what you call classic. Where are all the originals hanging? Do you have any of his work, Jarvis? Well, we, we had we had one, but it was it was like uh, having a pile of gold in the corner of your house. <laughs> Do you remember which one it is? I don't remember now. <laughs> Anybody that wants to learn more about Norman Rockwell, there's a couple of things we can advise. Buy Steve's forthcoming book and go to the museum. Um, are there any gatherings, any events, Norman Rockwell festivals, anything like that people should know about? Oh, I, I don't I don't know. I, I, I try not to. to I, I try. Um, there's a couple other places, too. I, 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 knew, I knew him personally, you know. George Lucas is opening a museum. In oh, that's right. That's that's right. That's right. That's right. That's it. George Lucas owns fifty paintings, including. Um, he just bought. Well, he did, Grace. Yeah, he just bought. Uh, Norman Rockwell was a big influence on his career. Yeah, he his uh, museum of illustration art will be open. I think it's supposed to be twenty. Well, I can only imagine the collective amount of his work when it comes to on the ledger. But it's not all about money. This is art we're talking about, after all. They're valuable works. Well, so some there some of them are very good pieces of painting. I tell you, of, of that style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the there's nothing is, quite like it anymore, and we will never see the likes again. Well, and the, one of the keys that I emphasize uh, is those iconic Arlington paintings were really made possible because he moved to the right place. 
somehow, you know, his instinct brought him to a place, as, as he said, with all these great faces and these people who were willing to pitch in and yeah. help. And Jarvis um, told me that the people weren't self-conscious. So he was able to, to bring this out of them. So having spent so much of my t- time in that little town, I like to, um, I guess, praise the people a little bit yeah. who, who were a, a big factor in making it all possible. Then he moved to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, because my mother was at Riggs Foundation, the psychiatric foundation, and and uh, he moved down there. and And then he then he found the same kind of people around there, the same kind of people that he needed. They, they, they were people who were. Uh, I guess not city people, exactly. <laughs> right. They weren't self-conscious, more self-assured. More relaxed, I think. Yeah. More authentic. What yeah, are those two authentic. communities like today? Are they Have they changed any bit? Oh, those communities? Jarvis's time and my time as a kid, it was all dairy farms. Everywhere you looked, there were yeah, cows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. West Arlington was a small farming a community of small farms, maybe 10 or 15 farms at that time yeah. within, you know, eight square miles or whatever. So there were cows. There, there's there's no farms left, unfortunately. They also made maple, maple syrup, maple sugar. They all, they all, they all had a sap house. Where they where they uh, where they they tap the trees and bring the sap in and, and boil it down and make maple sap maple syrup. So now in the picture behind you, the last syrup I got from Vermont was from the model's great grandson, Glenn Crowfoot, and uh, so he's still making syrup there. Oh my goodness! Yeah, well, that's something. Yeah, yeah, that's remarkable. He was a great American. He loved his country and he depicted it, these rural backdrops and models. You think about it, it would be wonderful if we had a Norman Rockwell type painter around today that could capture the positive side of America. <laughs> yeah. I think the I think the positive side has been has been captured, and I think that the negative side has to be taken, understood. <laughs> we, 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 we've we've uh, the, the world's on. Uh, well, how about we've gotten a bit found of ourselves? I think. <laughs> how about a painter who could sit down with Norman Rockwell type person who could really make the good in somebody shine like that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah make, that, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I yeah. like that, Steve. What would that painter look for? Maybe travel rural urban parts, maybe South Bronx and get some family who are happy. I mean, you never think of the South Bronx as always a happy well, place, uh, but there are a lot of happy Andrew, communities Andrew there. Wyeth, Andrew Wyeth has, has, has done has done his bit for the whole thing, I think, really. You know, I think more than people, some people realize, I think Andrew oh, Wyeth, Andrew, Andrew Wyeth and, and it's funny because his father was was a, it was a little stiff as a painter, I think, but but Andrew, Andrew really, I, we saw a thing on him the other night on television. He's, he, he really did some wonderful stuff. That girl in the field and, and uh, oh, it, it, some of his stuff is oh, really... Oh, Christina. I, Jarvis, I, I we're I'm going to wild. wrap up soon. So I want to get a few quick things in here. Your fondest memory of your dad, Norman Rockwell. Any particular memory you want to share that's worth noting? He had some some, some songs uh, from where, from when he was a kid that he used to sing to us, and some verses that he that he that he that he knew that were pretty good. I, I must say they were, they were yeah. You know, he, he could be kind of kind of kind of kind of comfortable having around sometimes. You know, he liked having dinner with him, right? Yeah, because uh, he'd always he'd always carve the meat, and and he sat at the head of the table. And uh, did he like big dinners? What was on the table? Was he a potato and meat man? Gravy, and string beans, string beans, and and uh, baked potatoes, and and roast beef or chicken or or turkey Fowl or, or something. And I I can tell you why because from the late forties to fifty three when he was there, uh, Norman had a cook named Marie Briggs. Yeah. And when I was a kid working on the farm with the fellow in Breaking Home Ties, Floyd Bentley, uh, Marie Briggs was our cook on the farm. We yeah. had the same cook. Yeah, that, wow. <laughs> and she was the saint of the town, always helping people. Is that and, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I didn't know in the about. Did she bake uh, apple pies and blueberry pies, and was she good on desserts? What I remember is walking into her kitchen, and she used a wood stove as well as a regular stove. Was um, is that right? The home baked bread, 
and then the farm-raised oh. meat and and uh, gravy and potatoes that were dug out of the ground there. Oh boy, oh, yeah, gravy. Oh, the gravy. Oh yeah. Oh, you don't get gravy anymore. <laughs> we have a lot of listeners around the world. After listening to this, they can also obviously go and see it on YouTube. But if you're already on YouTube, you don't need that explanation. Gravy means different things in different parts of America, right? I mean, there's gravy, which are mashed potatoes, and then there's gravy that they serve for breakfast in some parts of America in the South. And Italy, red gravy. So Steve, anything else you want to note here? If you were to sum up his legacy, what is the lasting legacy of Norman Rockwell? How will he be remembered in future generations? Well, he, he pictured he pictured American life at, at the time that he was here, and I think he did a a, a very good job a, a job in it. I, and he he, uh, he even he even included the black people, and 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 that was finally, and that was that was wonderful. I I I can remember uh, when he started doing that, and I I think it was wonderful. Uh, we haven't gone far enough with that, but what I mean is that he did do it, you know, yeah. And I think that's very important. It's a good point you brought up because he didn't in in terms of the models he picked and his outlook his broad outlook he didn't have a bad bone in his body he wanted to include everybody i met this uh, this uh, korean student when i was in, in the air force in korea for for one year i was in the air force for two years eight months 14 days and 10 and three quarters hours and and then I, and then i uh, and, and i met this korean student and i brought him back and and uh, he, he included him in one of his pictures you know well we the people as what pauline grind was talking about uh, that has an awful lot of different people from different backgrounds in it yeah a lot of more from arlington and yes he did include well some of the people from other countries and he moved out of the Stockbridge. I think he he became he was he was not then from it was not then Vermont, but it was it was it was a similar kind of people, very very similar. But it was wasn't farmers then, you know. It, most of the artists gravitated towards fine art, thirties, forties, fifties. So it left him as one of the few to chronicle rural life in America during that era. So you know, kids in school learn a lot about life at that time from those paintings. Pauline Adams Grimes. That was one fascinating interview. And thank you, Steve, for setting that up because we didn't get everything into the interview, but she spoke highly of Norman Rockwell, how easy it was to work with your dad, even mentioning how he paid for the cab fare for her and the siblings to the studio, which was quite a drive away. She also recalled... And you mentioned this, I think, Steve, in the New York Post article. He liked to sip Coca-Cola in the studio. Oh yeah, yeah. He had his he had his his his, his bottle of Coke every day, and he he take it out of the studio, and he had a he had a glass, and he and he and he put some in it, and then he and then he then he'd go back and have a little Coke every once in a while. And when I heard about cocaine, I thought, well, what what the what the hell is <laughs> what's he doing? What's he, what's he doing? <laughs> yeah, but but it, it, was, it would get it would get very warm by the time you know he got down to the end of it. And but he had he, a Coke machine. Well, Stephen Jarvis, this has been a tremendous and enjoyable conversation. It has been. I hope we can maybe gather together again, maybe when your book gets published, Steve and Jarvis, and we can talk about it because there's a, a lot of anticipation and there's a great buzz about it. I wish you well. We're in the middle of winter where you are all over North America and other parts. Uh, it's snowing where we are in Northwest New Jersey. It's probably snow where you are. And that reminds me of, I suppose, the perfect Norman Rockwell landscape. Snow everywhere, kids out on lakes skiing. You would see a lot of charming images to capture on canvas. No, actually, what it, what it looks like, it looks, it looks like winter. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's cold. It's and, cold. And, 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 I suppose you have been honest. It's quite and, miserable and, and, as well. People are out in their cars, but but you don't see anybody anymore. Uh, whatever the climate is doing, it's given us one hell of a cold winter here in North America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How's it in Ireland? They've had some snow this year, and when I think of Norman Rockwell, if he had taken a ship to Ireland back in those days. 
he would have had plenty of characters and landscapes from oh, the lakes indeed. of Killarney and Cooley Mountains and maybe Dublin City, Wicklow Mountains, gone to the Midlands, gone out to the great farms and small farms all over Ireland. He would have got natural, authentic people, maybe yeah. much like some of the ones, they might not have been doing some of the same things but right now, to answer your question, it's cold in Ireland still. We went to, uh, to Europe in 1938, which was late. Uh, we went to England. Boy, I'll tell you. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some experience. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. one year before the war we broke out. We went on, we went on, the, on, on the Bremen, which was a German ship. That was you and your dad? It might have been the last time the Bremen. <laughs> to get that correct, so it was you and your dad or all the family? It was, it was a whole, the whole family, yeah. So he was taking a break away from work, but how long was the trip for without getting into any details? A couple of weeks, but you're away anyway for a couple of weeks. So Steve and Jarvis, again, wonderful pleasure. And I hope to catch up again very soon. Stay well. God bless Norman Rockwell because he made this happen. And Steve, looking forward to your book. Okay, see you, see you, see you later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.